Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good afternoon to you, or should I say, buenas tardes. Oh, muchas gracias, senor. <laughs> um, yes, buenas tardes. I come to you live from Seville um, in a hotel, as far as I can tell, basically next door to the stadium. That's uh, handy. Well, it could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. I guess we'll discover tomorrow night. But um, I'm here. And it was not what I anticipated when I arrived yesterday to <laughs> basically the same weather conditions that we experienced on Saturday at Stamford Bridge. Yes, you sent me a video and um, the beautiful town of Sevilla with its cobbled streets and places for people to walk and mingle and eat and drink, the famous tapas and all that. But there wasn't a sinner to be seen on the road because it was pissing rain. It uh, was. Yeah. Those cobbles were really gleaming under the a deluge of rainwater that was falling on them. And then this morning I woke up and wandering around Seville, there are just trees fallen everywhere. I think there was a massive storm last night that I slept through. And <laughs> genuinely, like some big old trees have gone down. Right. Um, but the weather is clearing up. Okay, that's so good. So the delights of the city await, potentially. Good, yeah, good news for any of the Arsenal fans travelling out there today and tomorrow. Uh, it does look like the weather is going to pick up a little bit. Um, yeah. I have heard some some good travel stories already, actually. I was speaking to oh, yeah. a journalist who flew out this morning, and I think he was on like a 6.30 a.m. flight, and he said uh, there was a woman at 6.30 a.m. who was so drunk that she couldn't put on her seatbelt. Um, and the flight was delayed by an hour and a half because police had to remove her from the flight. Oh, my um, God. I don't know if she was an Arsenal fan. Unconfirmed. Um, I mean, I that's... I have to give a shout-out to my, <laughs> to my cousin, Will, 
who some of you will know, he's a very recognisable figure at Arsenal games, mainly because he's about eight feet tall. Big guy. Um, a contradiction of a man, a, a built like a giant, behaves like a football ultra and a countdown champion. It's extraordinary. <laughs> but his weekend, he went to Chelsea away um, and I believe went out after that. Last night, went to Bristol to watch the women in the evening, got a train back to London, got back to London about midnight last night, about 3am, got up again. or stay, I think he stayed up actually, got a coach and then a train to Gatwick Airport, flew to Malaga, has got a couple of trains from Malaga down to Seville and has made it here. So I had to give him a shout out for that. The lengths some of these Arsenal fans will go to are extraordinary. I mean, that is a very impressive, uh, that's really impressive commitment to the cause right there, isn't it? Coaches, planes, trains, automobiles, coaches. My goodness. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's either it's either over land and sea in Leicester, I guess. Yeah. I, it's either very impressive or a feat of poor organisation. And I don't know which it is. I endeavour to find out when he eventually arrives in town. Yeah. The other, the other thing is he's wandering around with a giant sack of badges as well, which makes like... <laughs> You've got to bear that in mind. <laughs> he's got his brilliant uh, enamel badge business to consider. So, you know, getting those through security alone is a big concern. Well, fair play. And you're there to cover the game tomorrow night. Uh, we're here mm -hmm. to talk about the game that took place on Saturday evening. Uh, a 2-2 draw with Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. A game, you know, I have to admit that about 76 minutes in, I, I, was, I was slightly concerned about our chances of getting anything from it. Um, but in the end, it turned out okay, considering the position we were in, a 2-2 draw, as I said. So let's... Let's go back and let's talk about that. And um, team selection, I suppose, is always a good place to start. Nothing majorly surprising. Saka was back. Saliba was back. The first time we've seen Gabriel Jesus uh, alongside um, Martinelli and Saka in the Premier League, starting a game anyway. Uh, and Jorginho kept his place in, in midfield. Thomas Partey on the bench, perhaps not deemed quite fit enough to start in a game like this. So anything strange for you with the team selection? Was it more or less what you expected? No, it was kind of what I anticipated. I mean, you know, Arteta sort of suggested that Saliba and Saka would need late tests. It, it, I actually thought, we spoke last week about the degree to which he'll try and deceive journalists in press conferences about injuries, but I thought with Saka, he kind of failed a bit this week because he sort of said, well... It's the first training session back today. You know, I need to look at everybody. Um, and then about five minutes later, he was like, he's been working really hard here for two weeks. Obviously, he hadn't been away on international duty. <laughs> so I think we, we knew pretty much he was going to play. Um, I thought Partey might play, I have mm. to say, just because he'd started in the international break. But, you know, maybe this is a case of learning a lesson. We've rushed him in before. Um, why do you buy a player like Declan Rice? Why do you buy a player like Jorginho? To mean you don't have to rush those decisions. You don't have to hurry him back. So I didn't have any concerns, particularly over the starting eleven, but I did have concerns almost as soon as the game kicked off. Well, yes, Declan Rice was quite upfront about this afterwards and he said it was you know, uh, the sloppiest or the worst we've played all season in terms of sloppiness, not doing things in our structure, not doing things how we've worked on them all week. And I think the tone was set very early on, wasn't it? Where I think Zinchenko actually defended uh, Chelsea um, 
foray into our area quite well, came out with the ball and then just gave it away and Ben White had to make a block and then someone shot over, was it Enzo Fernandez, shot over the bar. That was in, you know, the opening two minutes, I think. And I think that did set the tone for Arsenal's first half performance or at least in some ways our perception of the first half performance because, you know, I don't think we were good, but I don't think we were terrible, terrible. I mean, things didn't go well once we got into the Chelsea half, you know? I think in terms of, you know, we had that shaky start, as I mentioned, and we'll talk about the penalty now in a moment going behind pretty early. But the difficulty that I saw anyway, and I'm not sure whether you agree or not, is what we did once we got into the Chelsea half rather than, you know, our ability maybe to control the game. I think Chelsea, you know, set up in a way that that made it difficult to play through them. Um, But we weren't under huge pressure or anything like that. It was just not being able to find those passes into the final third or being accurate with those passes into the final third once we got into the Chelsea half. And I think that, you know, was for me the, the, the key part of the first half. Yeah, it's interesting. There were two moments in the first six minutes of the game where Gabriel Jesus came all the way back, I think almost to within his own defensive third of the pitch to help Arsenal win the ball back uh, and set them away. And on the one hand, I was like, that's great. Look at that from Jesus. Look at the work rate. Look at the endeavour. Look how much he's coming to back to help out his teammates. And on the other hand it kind of foreshadowed some of the problems Arsenal would have, which is when Chelsea did block up the middle of the pitch, they didn't really have an outlet, a target, a focal point up top, I felt at times. Um, And I don't just blame Jesus for that, but I just just mean that nothing really was sticking to Mm. Saka, nothing was sticking to Odegaard, nothing was sticking to Jesus particularly. Chelsea worked really hard off the ball. They put Conor Gallagher on Jorginho and... You know, in terms of athleticism, there's a big gap between those two players. In terms of technical quality, there's a big gap in the opposite direction. But this was a day under those conditions where hard running um, was was probably the way to go. And Chelsea did quite a lot of good hard running. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Arsenal were diabolical. I mean, it was a weird game because obviously we find ourselves 2-0 down, you know, by the, by five minutes into the second half. Um, and as much as I don't think we'd done enough really to put ourselves in front, I think we were still pretty fortunate, uh, unfortunate to be on the end of that scoreline. I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, you, you mentioned Jesus coming back to mm. work hard and pick up the ball and all the rest of it. I, um, before I get on to the, what I'm about to say there, just, uh, again, not making any excuses, I'm wondering what you think or what sort of influence you think the conditions might have had on the Arsenal performance, if any. You know, it was a pretty wet night. Pitch was a bit soggy. Um, That does have an impact because, you know, when you're trying to pass the ball, we had a question. Um, Let me see if I can find it here. I just wanted to bring it up. Um, Gunnar underscore NCSU on the Discord was asking about intent and fast-paced passing from Declan Rice on a porridge pitch. His passing was crisp and uh, et cetera, et cetera, but um, many of the others didn't quite match that. I think that's probably true, but I do wonder how much the pitch and the conditions you think had an impact on that. 
Yeah, it may well have done. It may well have done. Um, it was very, very wet. And, you know, it, it, it did seem, the ball didn't seem to travel quite as the Arsenal players expected it to a lot of the time. I mean, mm. people like Jorginho and Zinchenko, who I think you regard as, you know, really secure in possession, um, I think they struggled to find the accuracy, to find the pace on their passing as they might hope for. Um, and I think the surface probably does have something to right. do with that. Okay, well, here, let me go back to what I was going to uh, say. The the dropping deep of Jesus, yeah. very early on in the game, he was left in a crumpled heap on the floor because of what I think was a red card challenge from Cole Palmer. I think he was very lucky to get away with that. Um, I can understand maybe the referee not seeing it because, you know, this is a referee who later in the game saw a goalkeeper completely polex Gabriel Jesus in the box and, and decided that nothing had happened. So I can understand him missing a, a challenge like that. But again, it's one of those that when you see it back, you're wondering why hasn't VAR got involved in that? Because it's from behind, it's late, he's nowhere near the ball and his studs go right down the back of the Achilles of Gabriel Jesus. So Cole Palmer obviously had an impact on the game. He had a, he had a good game for Chelsea, I think. But mm-hmm. I don't think he should have been on the pitch. I don't think... And actually, there was a moment after... He got booked for it, but there was a moment after where he was fouled by Declan Rice and then got up and was asking, where's the card? Like, do you only get a second yellow if you uh, do the card gesture? I don't know what it is. But I think, you know, wh- when it comes to the penalty, he was fortunate to be on the pitch to be able to take it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, obviously, there's a, a number of big refereeing decisions in this game, and I suppose we'll get mm. to them chronologically. I, I think this one is really borderline. Like, if it, if the referee had given a red card, there's no way that the VAR would overturn it. Um, and I don't know. I didn't have the television pictures, but did they t- speak about a VAR review? Because uh, it seemed to be over very quickly if there was one, which really surprised me. I think they did. I can't quite remember, but I think they did say, well, VAR will check as it, as it does uh, and then check complete. The guy had been issued a yellow card. Um, what, what irritated me, I have to say, almost secondary to that incident was, you're right, Rice committed a foul shortly afterwards and Chelsea players all wanted him booked. Um, he didn't get a booking and I thought that was the right call. And then... A minute or so later, Zinchenko committed a foul that I don't think was any worse than what Declan Rice did. And it seemed plain as day to me that the referee booked Zinchenko because of the pressure that had been exerted on him to book Rice. Agree. Um, Agree. And book Zinchenko for, like, it was a a foul, but he could just give a free kick and play on. If Zinchenko's getting booked for that, why didn't Kukurea... I kept calling him Cucaracha on the live blog just for fun, but uh, <laughs> he is annoying like a little cockroach anyway. But uh, Cucurea got away with three or four at least on Bakayo Saka in the first half alone. Yeah. Well, that was a real... And that booking of Zinchenko really annoyed me because it was a real home decision. It was a decision that wasn't really about that foul. It was about something that had happened a couple of minutes before involving another player. And actually, it was quite uh, sort of treacherous, really, for Arsenal to have Zinchenko on a booking because Chelsea's game plan in the first half, which is the same as it was, I think, in this fixture last season, was to try and look 
in behind Zinchenko with Raheem Sterling on that side. Um, mm. And Zinchenko obviously ends up getting brought off at half time. Now, he wasn't having a good game, but certainly the booking didn't help him in that regard. So, yeah, I think there was a few things even before the penalty that you could certainly query from, from the from the referee. All right, so the penalty. Um, I don't know how to discuss handball anymore. Yeah. Because I'm not sure what is and what isn't handball, what's leg- legitimately a handball. You know, I don't know how you are supposed to jump as a defender without your arms in the air. Like, you can't sort of propel yourself forward like a seal coming out of the ocean. You know, you just... You need your arms. Um, That said, I was applying my rule of thumb to the decision and I'm saying, well, if that happens up the other end, do I want a penalty? Do I think it would be a reasonable penalty for Arsenal to be given? And I think probably yes. But at the same time, the laws of the game state, and Mikel Arteta talked about this afterwards, you know, the, the defender has... Um, he has to be able to use his arms to jump and it was you know, close range and all the rest of it. So I don't know if you've got anything new or exciting to add on this. You know, it could be a penalty. It could not be a penalty. This time it was. Yeah, I've really been round the houses on it. You know, I, I've kind of over the past four hours come to various conclusions and I suppose that tells its own story about the state of handball at this point in time. I think the law says it's an offensive for player deliberately touches the ball with a hand or arm. Well, obviously, that's not what happened here. It's also an offensive for player touches the ball with their hand or arm when it has made their body unnaturally bigger. A player is considered to have made their body unnaturally bigger when the position of their hand or arm is not a consequence of or justifiable by the player's body movement for that specific situation. Now, I think you can say that Saliba's hand position, even if you deem it uh, making his body bigger, it is a consequence of his body movement, right? He's mm. jumping. He's jumping with his arms outstretched. Um, so I completely understand people who feel like that should not be a penalty. Equally, if you have an attempt at goal and it's blocked by a player's hand, if it was an Arsenal player taking that shot or having that header, I would probably be calling for a penalty kick. And I'm sorry that I can't be more definitive about it. Mm. But I think we've just seen so many iterations of handball over the last few years, particularly, where it seemed to swing and change quite frequently that I just feel a bit lost on it. Yeah, same. It's so it feels arbitrary, to be honest. Yeah. Like, what is the definition of an unnatural position? Like, if you're if you dive towards the ball with your hand, sure. But if you're actually trying to propel yourself through the air to win a header, you know, that's not unnatural in the context of the movement that you're making. So, no, I, I see that. But then equally, yeah. I suppose any foul offence, you know, whether it's deliberate or not is is kind of irrelevant, isn't it? Like, mm. you know, if you're a fraction late on a tackle, for example, it's not that you've gone to foul the player, but, you know, you are still committing an offence. It's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really hope this situation could be clarified. Um, but on balance, I'm sort of okay with that one being a penalty. I just think in the context of the sort of wider officiating of the game, it felt particularly frustrating. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really spark any kind of 
attacking response from Arsenal because, we, uh, as we said, we had lots of the ball. 62% possession in the first half with just two mm. shots. And I think Particularly that, once we went behind, we seemed to have a lot more of the ball. I think yeah. in the five or ten minutes after that, Sky put up a graphic and it was like 80% possession for Arsenal. Yeah. Um, I think there was a moment, wasn't there, in, maybe it was late in the half when Odegaard tried a first-time pass through to Jesus and just went completely the wrong side of him. Like a decent yeah. idea, but it, it just didn't work. And I think that sort of summed up you know, what we were um, unable to do in that first half. And the best moment was Rice getting in behind, wasn't it? Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if that was a shot or just uh, uh, knocking it into a dangerous area, but it went just wide of the far post. That was a, a, probably our best move and our best moment of the half. Yeah. And it wasn't one thing or the other. It, really, wasn't great. Wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> it still wasn't great. Um, there was a halftime change. I do think Sinchenko was inhibited a bit by the yellow card. And I think it was a smart move to take him off, yeah. to be honest. Um, Tommy Asu came, came on. And yeah. He won his first duel with Raheem Sterling and you immediately felt a bit more secure about that side of the pitch, I think. Yeah, it was. He completely secured it, locked it down basically because, um, you know, his quality as a defender is, is really excellent. And um, that was an understandable change. I was maybe hoping to see Partey for Jorginho at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, at halftime, I was, I was kind of hoping to see that because I felt like... If we were going to get back into the game, the connectivity that we have in midfield versus the way Chelsea were set up um, needed to be better. You know, I, I don't think Jorginho had a like a terrible game, but he wasn't good. Um, the passing was a bit too slow again. Maybe it was conditions and we players who weren't quite at their best. Odegaard, I think at one point, his halftime passing was something like 68% pass completion, which is really low for him. Saka hadn't Mm. been in the game too much. Gabriel Martinelli grew into the game, I think, in the second half and looked the most likely to make something happen from an Arsenal perspective. He, He seemed to be the most dangerous. Jesus wasn't really in the game. So, you know, collectively, individually, it wasn't great. And then, of course, very early on, we go... 2-0 2-0 down. I think it was a Ben White pass to Odegaard who got caught on the ball. Mudrick down the left-hand side and tried to cross and it went in. Um, the goal of Mikhailo Mudrick to even suggest in an interview apparently that it was in some way intentional. Did you see this? No. He, he said, uh, I think it was with being sports or someone like that, a foreign broadcaster, he implied that the Chelsea, uh, I think, goalie coach had told him about Raya's aggressive positioning and uh, aimed. And so subsequently, you know, it was something he was aware of and slightly playing for. There's a great clip of Mikel Arteta having that put to him by the same broadcaster. Oh, yeah. And he, and he sort of just goes like, he said it was intentional. Mm, kind of thing. Like, he <laughs> dismisses it with a look. Um so, yeah, I thought that was ludicrous. A complete fluke from Madrid's part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like we should play this clip for uh, Mikhailo Mudrik. <laughs> You're so funny. Um, <laughs> but it was a fluke. I mean, it, it was a fluke. I was, I have to say, not for the first time this season, a little bit irritated by Gary Neville on Sky. I, I you know, he was determined to make this a big, big goalkeeping error. And I get that this... 
there is a discussion to be had about the position that he takes up at the near post. But I can only assume that, you know, uh, an experienced professional goalkeeper is understanding of his surroundings, knows where he is. He's not like a, oh, look, I'm standing behind the line like David Ospina guy. That I think we've had a few near post incidents in the last couple of years. And I have to assume that that position is something that is instructed. It's part of the goalkeeping coaching, part of the instruction that when a player is in that position, this is where you need to be because, um, you know, you can maybe intercept the ball or, or make sure that nothing goes close to the near post. I, You know, it's a perfect miskick from Mudrick because he is trying to cross it. And he puts it in the only place, or it goes in the only place where it can go in. It, it skims the crossbar and and all the rest. So, you know, to what extent do you feel like that's goalkeeping error versus just a kind of freaky fluke goal? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised Gary Neville tried to make it about the goalkeepers. As I said, when we signed David Raya, we're going to get that all season. And I noticed that with Aaron Ramsdale not there, congratulations to him and his partner on the, the birth of their son. Yes. Um, Sky it resorted to cutting to Inyaki Kanya on the bench. Um, <laughs> they've got to find someone to cut to uh, yeah. when a goalkeeper makes a an error. I, I went back and had a look at a couple of moments from the Spurs game, actually. Um, I, so he made that brilliant save, you may remember, David Raya. Uh, I forget who from, where the ball was kind of squared across the pitch and oh, dove across the goal. And Brennan saved. Johnson, wasn't it? Yes, I looked at that and I looked at the goal that Spurs scored as well from Son. And I've actually just sent you the screen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Later. But if you look, David Meyer's position is similar to the one he adopted at Chelsea. He's actually outside of his own near post at both times when the ball is crossed. Mm -hmm. And that says to me that either this is coaching or it's his style. And it's got to be something that the club are aware of and conscious of. And so I don't think you can quite call it a mistake, really. I just think he was caught out by the one finish that was available to Madrid and that he didn't even do by mistake. On purpose. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't even yeah. do on purpose. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, if a goalkeeper makes a mistake... Uh, you know, there is a, a lot of spotlight, a lot of pressure. I think he did make a big mistake in this game, and that was uh, kicking the ball straight to Cole Palmer um, a few minutes later or a few minutes um, after that. That was, for me, the big mistake. I don't put the goal that he conceded down as a mistake. I think that's, you know, carelessness on our part for losing the ball high up the pitch and not getting back in time and maybe not closing the cross down. But, you know, it's kind of a freak occurrence. Most of the time, uh, Madrid will put a cross in there with his left foot and either a Chelsea player get there or an Arsenal player get there, headed away. The keeper might, you know, uh, get back in time to make a save if there's a shot on target. But I just think this is this is a, a freaky goal. Saka got one against Chelsea, didn't he, a few years ago? Uh, well, right he meant that. He definitely meant that. Of course he meant that one. <laughs> That's the thing. He had a tip-off from a goalkeeper coach about it. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so nonetheless, obviously, I appreciate it's not a good look for a goalkeeper. And I don't think David Rye will have been feeling too good about it. Um, even if, you know, faced with the same situation, he'd probably take up a similar position. 
Um, and I agree that he made a big mistake after that when he played the ball straight to Cole Palmer. That, for me, is uh, much more alarming. Mm. Um, and at 2-0... Yeah, I was feeling pretty gloomy sat there in the rain at Stamford Bridge, I have to be honest with you. Yes, it it wasn't great, but I think in terms of attacking threat, we had a bit more about us in, in the second half. There were 11 shots by Arsenal in the second half, four shots on target, four shots blocked by Chelsea. So it did suggest that we were, if not quite banging on the door, we were at least doing a bit more than we did in, in the first half. The manager, changes helped, I think. Changes did help. Smith Rowe and Enkedia came on, and then it was Trossard and who was the other one? Uh, Kai Havertz. Kai Havertz, of course. A, a decent little cameo and, and gave us at least a different option. Yes, know? I agree. I agree. He he did give us a bit of an outlet up top, and he won some headers, and um, it gave the Chelsea defenders a, a little something to, to think about. Um, I said to you at halftime, on text, I said, I think Chelsea have got a mistake in them along the way here. And lo and behold, Robert Sanchez, who I think looked the shakier of the two goalkeepers, despite the, the spotlight on Raya because of the Mudrick goal, I think Sanchez throughout looked much more rattled in terms of his overall performance. It was one corner or cross or something that he he sort of flapped away, got a a hand on it and flapped the ball away and then was complaining afterwards about being held or being impeded or something. And it was his own player who wasn't even that close to him anyway. So he was all over the place. So 77 minutes uh, into the game, I'm thinking, "Mm, I'm not sure we're going to get something out of this at all. And then Sanchez misplaces a pass. Conor Gallagher is caught on his heels. Declan Rice nips in front of him and while I think you have to say it is a mistake from the goalkeeper, it's not like a tap-in or a cast-iron, cast-iron, cast-iron guarantee? Is that what you say? Totally. It, I it, agree. Like, I was thinking about this. It, it's not uh, as big a mistake as the one Raya passes yeah. to Palmer, but it's made to look it by a really good finish. The finish is just superb. And I think he spoke a bit afterwards, didn't he? He had to like make a split-second decision as to what to do there, either make a pass or take a touch. And he just went for it instinctively. I think he just kind of said, fuck it, I'll give it a bash. Uh, you know, uh, the trajectory of the ball is extremely pleasing as it goes into the net. Yeah, lovely little curl and bounce on it. He took on the responsibility, Declan Rice, which is what he does in a lot of scenarios. And that was the moment, really, that... The game changed. I think Arsenal took so much belief from it and Chelsea lost a lot of belief. And um, yeah, grateful to Robert Sanchez. But let me tell you, I think eight times out of 10, the goalie makes that mistake. It doesn't get punished as well as Rice punished Mm. him. Agree, agree. Uh, The finish deserves um, way more of the kudos than Sanchez's mistake uh, as, Mm. as part of that goal. That's the worst English sentence I think I've ever spoken in my life. I apologise to everybody <laughs> listening for that. You started in Spanish, Andrew, and it's been hard for you to re- readapt. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, the second Arsenal goal, I really like this goal a lot. Not just because it's yeah. the second goal, it got us something, but I think the the play, 
there's a beautiful pass, a first-time cushion pass from Ben White to Kai Havertz, which I've watched over and over again. I just love the precision and the weight that he puts on that pass. Havertz to Saka. I think Ben White then makes an overlapping run to draw a defender or two away or, or, or take at least one defender away. Saka comes back inside, cross to the back post. There's Leandro Trossard, another very, very good finish. And I was just thinking, you know, all the discussion about Bakayo Saka, is he tired? Is he this? Is he that? Why does he always play every game? Well, this is why. Yeah. You know, this is why he, I think by his own standards, had a fairly quiet game, didn't have a shot, which is unusual. Um, Was being kicked around, of course, by Kukurea for most of the game and, you know, didn't really get a great deal of, of satisfaction down that right-hand side. But when you need something, when you need a player to give you a goal or an assist, not out of nothing, but but to provide a moment of real quality that you can capitalize on as a team, he is that guy. Like 10 goal involvements in 10 games this season. That's why he plays all the time. And that's why, you know, I was sort of half wondering if Mikel Arteta might make an attacking change and take Saka off. You know, but he didn't, thankfully. Um, he knows much better than me. And that that delivery from Saka, I think, is just basically undefendable if you've got a player like Trossard who's got the the intelligence and the experience to make that movement behind the last defender. Yeah, Trossard puts his hand up just as Saka's winding up to, to swing the cross in and just, you know, it almost points where to play it. Uh, Absolutely brilliant execution from Saka to pull it off. And I think Trossard makes an awkward finish look mm. very comfortable. But, you know, technically he's extremely good to Trossard, so he does that fairly frequently. Um, another big moment off the bench for him. It's so useful to have players in your squad that you can count on to come on and help change games. And I think Trossard has that capacity. And, you know, there were seven minutes... Still to play. I think there was another seven minutes of added time. I have to be honest, and maybe it was just the rain that had been pouring down all day, but I wondered if Kai Havertz was going to go full Carnu, you know, and yeah. uh, languidly go around Sanchez to complete his humiliation, and we might find a winner somewhere. Well, I mean, there was a chance for Eddie, wasn't there? There was a long ball over yeah. the top that he did really well to get on the end of, and he, he sort of pulled his shot across goal. I think Sanchez was stranded there. If that had gone in... You know, if that had been on target, I don't think the keeper was getting anywhere near it. No. Um, but I, you, what did you make of the last seven minutes? Do you think it was a case that we, you know, we knew we were... Fortune is not quite the right word, but when you're 2-0 down away from home on 77 minutes and you get it back to 2-2, I suppose it crosses your mind that the last thing you want to do is, is throw it away um, by trying to win it. But I did wonder a couple of times if there were little moments in those final minutes after that Eddie chance where we were just a bit rushed. We were maybe playing it a little bit safe. I remember Raya clearing it long um, when he had, I think, Saliba just outside him. He could have rolled the ball to Saliba. We could have, you know, taken possession and kept possession, but he went long a couple of times and, um, you know, Compared to maybe the, the the period after we scored against Man City, I know the context was different. We were we were playing to sort of keep a one nil lead, but I think there was a sort of safety first approach to some of our play in those final seven minutes. 
I think it might have been safety first. I think it also might just have been that slight lack of quality that, to be honest, was, I think, there all day. Um, you know, and when you look at our goals that we got, there, there was definitely quality in those moments, but they weren't so much uh, a product of long periods of Arsenal possession as, well, the first one is a misplaced pass from Sanchez. The second one is a long ball into Kai Havertz um, that kind of bounces down and, and we pick up the pieces from there. It was interesting. The Chelsea press box is right behind the dugouts. And in those final 14 minutes or so, if you include the added time, Arteta was as animated, as frustrated, as angry as he was at any point in the game. You know, he mm. was teeth gnashing, like spinning away, throwing his arms up in frustration, looking at his coaching staff as if to say, what the hell is this? I don't think he was happy with the degree of composure Arsenal showed once they'd got to that 2-2 at all. Hmm. Um, maybe because he sensed there was an opportunity there, the momentum was with them. If they could string uh, some pressure together, then they could maybe turn the screw on Chelsea and find a winner. But yeah, I think uh, he was pretty unhappy with the performance even after that point. And I guess he'll come away from the game, as we all do probably, um, <laughs> it's that curious thing of sort of like, well, you know, we might even have won it. But mm. equally, I feel like we sort of got away with one there. And as a Chelsea fan, you know, 2-0 up with 15 minutes on the clock, wherever it is, I think you'd be pretty furious with how your team let that slip. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Where do you stand on the, you know, if you are seeking the positives from a game mm -hmm. like this 2-2 two, two away to Chelsea you know that's not a bad result uh, in any season really even though we've got a very good winning record against them you know the concerns that we might have had or might still have about the the performance levels like I I didn't think Chelsea were that good to be honest I thought we were well below our best and Chelsea were Agreed. okay and they had a pretty decent game plan which revolved around compact organization which I, I don't think is particularly sophisticated or anything like that they get a penalty they get a lucky goal through Mudrick and you know I don't think that their performance uh, merited three points if you like but you know football is not really about uh, deserve a lot of the time but even in the depths of our maybe worst performance of the season, we were able to come back, albeit with a little help from Robert Sanchez, but credit to Declan Rice, as I said, to come back and to not get beaten. So where are you on the, I'd like us to play better versus actually we're really hard to beat even when we're not playing well. And that's got to be a positive. Uh, where Where is your sort of, uh, marker on that one? Um, well, I, I think a lot of our expectations about this game are built around the idea that Chelsea have been a bit of a shit show, haven't they, in the early period of the season. I do think we were playing them at a time when they'd slightly got things together a little bit. You know, they'd won their previous two games. There was a bit more structure to them. They were looking a bit more coherent. I agree with you. They weren't amazing against us, but I don't think this is the Chelsea side that 
you know, looked really defensively sloppy in the early period of the season. Um, I think any situation where you come from behind, you've got to be happy that you've salvaged something from the game. Um, I think relief is my overriding mm. emotion. You know, I just think Arsenal did not perform at their level or close to it. I agree with you on that. And to get out of Stamford Bridge in that situation with a point is a very, very good outcome. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I think going into the game, there were fans who probably would have told you a draw is not a bad result here. To get one from 2-0 down is very, very welcome. And it's one of those where as a coach, you know, there's a lot to take from it, a lot to work on, a lot of room for improvement. Um, and they need to improve quickly because this Champions League game we've got coming up out here, here in Seville, given our context, given the context of the defeat in Lens, is a really big one. It is, for sure. And, you know, Arteta said afterwards, um, the part that he loved was going into the dressing room and the dressing room being quiet after mm. coming back. And I suppose that suggests the players' focus and the 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 post game or the very initial post game uh, reaction from the players and the staff is that the performance wasn't good enough, right? Yeah. Rather than it was quiet and yeah, um, like it would be after a defeat, and that's because they know they didn't reach their level, and that tells you about the standards, the degree of expectation that have uh, that Arteta is trying to create. Yeah, and you're, you're sort of always playing with fire, aren't you, when you try and, you know, talk about character and mental strength and, and all the rest of it. But I do think there is something to the idea that when when a team is capable of getting something from games very late with the kind of frequency that we've been doing it in the last what maybe 18 months maybe yeah. a bit more i think that can become positive you know like you ideally you don't want to have to be leaving it late but the fact that you can do it i think does have an impact maybe on the opposition at times as well because they don't feel comfortable and that uncomfortableness can translate into nervousness or or whatever else in the final stages of the game. I also think it's really helpful that the five substitutes we made in this game, Tomiyasu, Smith-Rowe, Nketiah, uh, Trossard, Kai Havertz, uh, they gave us different things, different qualities. I think having that depth on the bench is an important part of being able to do what we're doing in the in the final stages of games as well. You're not sitting there looking at raw youngsters and they're not ready to play. They're only there because you don't have anybody else, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that aspect of of how we were able to come back into this game is is worth noting as well. No, I'm with you there. You know, as much as I think we were all underwhelmed by Arsenal's performance, we shouldn't discount the fact that they kept plugging away. They put themselves in a position to take advantage of that mistake from Chelsea. Um and, you know, they did improve, I think, as as they went on. It shows real, uh, what's the belief, I guess, the fact that they were able to pull it back. And I think we're at a point where Arsenal have scored enough of these late goals that 
you can't possibly write it off as coincidence. You know, mm. they really do give everything until the last minute. That's what Arteta expects from them. It's what he demands, and, and he won't accept any less. So, yeah, 2-2, uh, a point that I didn't think we were going to get, um, and I suppose one that uh, I'm pretty grateful for, to be honest. 2-2 um, against Chelsea away from home, maybe in the uh, in the the end game of this season, we might look back and think that that's a, a pretty useful point, all things considered. Anything else on the game? Anything else on the performance or anyone uh, in particular before we take a little break? No, I mean, there are a couple of other things that we could have touched on further, but I think there's questions sort of related to those. So maybe best to hold them off for part two and get into them with your questions. All right. We will take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. James, as you are away enjoying ham on ruffles in the warm air, regardless of whether there's rain or not, sure, I will let you go first. Very kind. Thank you. Well, let's start with Arsenal Ace. And Arsenal Ace says, why do you never read my questions? Would it help if I said I hate magpies? Evidently, it would help because we're doing your question. The question is, was the beautiful football of last season a mirage? How can it so drastically change 
it's not just the amount of deep blocks we're up against exclamation mark um how can it so drastically change well we have played manchester united we have played manchester city we have played a north london derby we have played chelsea away do mm-hmm. think to some extent the fixtures are a little bit of an explanation we've talked as well before about maybe being a little less gung-ho or, or having a little less panache in order to have a little more control in games and that sacrifice of um tactics or whatever whatever way you want to call it uh could have an impact on that i, I don't think the team has been properly settled either um we've not had the, the front three i mean that was yeah, their first game that was together. their first game i still think there's a bit of an issue in in midfield uh we've had injuries you know thomas Partey starting at right back no left back for the first three games or you know injuries as well so i don't you know i i don't know that it's any one thing i think it's just a combination of things and i think the idea that it's going to click and be brilliant. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I think maybe we are moving towards being a more functional team than the exciting team from from last season. I think the excitement of last season, some of the football from last season, felt like crest of a wave stuff to an extent, mm-hmm. even if, you know, there was a big gap in the middle of the season and we were able to pick up kind of where we left off, but maybe not to the same extent because we didn't have Gabriel Jesus for a long time. And I think that had an impact on, on the way we played. So I, I just think it's all of those things, really. And I don't know if I'm quite as concerned about that as some people. Interesting, yeah. But- I, I concur. I think we are evolving into a more um, stable, maybe more sustainable team. Um, I think it's one that's so far been less exciting to watch. Um, I, I think the chance creation numbers are down. You know, I think we're not creating the same number of opportunities. And, and we speak about these games being settled by fine margins, but that's, partly because we're not kind of overloading teams, overrunning teams and, and creating a ton. The fixture list is a big component in that. You know, we're playing Champions League games, which are tight. We're playing Champions League level games in a lot of our Premier League fixtures so far against the opponents you listed. Um, so I would say I am a little concerned, but for all the reasons that you outline, and particularly the fact that we're still in October, I think it's probably too soon to draw definitive conclusions at this point in time yeah um and be too worried but i am sort of keeping an eye on the attacking numbers and you know our xg and what we're creating how many shots on target we're getting and there is just a little part of me thinking has there been a drop off there and if so why yeah Um, i mean i didn't say i wasn't concerned i just said i'm not as concerned as some people uh, seem to be because we are you know top of the table uh or there thereabouts uh we haven't lost a game yet so i think those are 
are pretty good signs, to be honest. I mean, there was a, a tweet here from Joseph Petrassi who said, we're currently 15th with big chances created uh, of 11. In comparison, Newcastle have made 26. Um, so, I mean, there is... there is Newcastle a- did beat a team 8-0, which I think is important to bear in mind with their stats. Uh, I think I'm right to say, but yeah. Yeah, true. And who have they played? Um, yeah, I mean, they've played Liverpool, they've played Man City, but they've they also played Etihad, yeah. Brentford, Sheffield United. Um I mean, look, there's some games coming up for Arsenal. Obviously, there's tough games. We mentioned Sevilla. There's Newcastle not too far away, but there's Sheffield United at home, Burnley at home. You know, it'll be interesting to see if we can really put someone to the sword in in a fashion that we did maybe at home to PSV, but we've not necessarily managed to do elsewhere. Well, I mean, we beat Bournemouth 4-0 away from home. You know, so... There are signs. It's not like it's not been there, but I do agree that there is something, like I said, I think there's something not quite right in midfield. So we had a a, a question here from Sonny De Niro, who's at Sonny De Niro on Twitter. He said, do we have a midfield problem since Shaka left? It feels like we don't have the right balance. Partey's always injured. And even if he's fit, Rice seems happier in the six. Do we need to revisit the left central midfield, uh, the fabled left eight in January or the summer? I I feel like that is still a position that needs to be filled properly after the departure of Xhaka because he was a big player for us last season and, and maybe for a good chunk of the previous season as well. He was effective. He was influential. He was experienced. And I think we miss that version of Granite Jagger if, you know, even if I think the time is right for everybody to move on and all the rest of it, we haven't quite found the right fit for that position yet. I agree. I think we sort of were always going to miss him. Um, And like you, I don't think it makes it wrong necessarily that he was moved on. I think it was sort of the timing was right. It was a step in the evolution of the team. I think we hoped that Kai Havertz might come in and be an immediate fit and hit the ground running. But I think given the sort of shift in position, given the fact that he's in a new environment, I always felt that was maybe a little bit uh, ambitious to believe that could happen. Um, And yeah, I I agree with the question's point. I mean, Shaka's role at Arsenal was partly defined by some really good relationships he had on the pitch. You know, he had a good relationship with Zinchenko, provided him with a lot of cover, gave him opportunities to move forward. He had a good relationship with Thomas Partey. If he needed to, he could drop in, support him as the holding midfielder. He had a good relationship with Gabriel Martinelli. You know, when Martinelli went in field, he'd go outside him. They had that understanding and interplay down to a T. And replacing that, all of that, was never going to be easy. Mm. Um, I think Declan Rice is kind of the guy who's come closest to emulating the whole package that Shaka offered. But I don't think either Rice or Havertz are necessarily quite the same. And what was Shaka's standout feature last season? His attacking threat. Mm. You know, and especially in this early period of the season, what he was providing in terms of runs, goals, assists. And what we were seeing was 
well, we love that. We'd like more of that. We'd like someone who's even more natural, even more threatening, even more dangerous in those positions. We haven't had that this season. Um, maybe a few glimpses from Fabio Vieira here and there. Maybe a couple of glimpses from Kai Havertz. But yeah, I think I think it is a bit of an issue. And I think the central midfield three for Arsenal last season were just absolutely top in Partey, uh, Shaka, and Odegaard. And because of Shaka's departure, because of the signing of Rice, there was always going to be a bit of a transition there. And I think we're just still in it. You know, we're still in that transition and we haven't quite clicked. Yeah. Respect. I think uh, I think as well, it, you know, we have a question here about Martin Odegaard, which I'm going to ask you now in a second. Okay. But I do think that that perhaps it's impacted Odegaard as well. You know, because those relationships, those automatisms, all the rest of it were were a big part of why we were as good as we were last season. And now a, a chunk of that is gone, a relationship on the pitch. You know, he played with Shaka for two seasons or whatever it was, two and a half seasons. So I, I think there might be some part of that is... Um, is why Martin Odegaard hasn't quite been at his best this season. But the question that we had, uh, a couple of people mentioned this, ATX Bergkamp Lover 6969420 on Discord says, Martin Odegaard seems to consistently have subpar games immediately after international breaks. What do you think causes this? And what options do we have to combat it in the future? Um, and then Aaron Lagunner, also on the Discord, said, do we have a Martin Odegaard post-international break problem? He always seems to have a disjointed game whenever he returns from representing his country. Should we be starting Vieira post-international break from now on? And Fabio Vieira not in the squad uh, against Chelsea. Mm-hmm. How mad is football? You know, who would have uh, bet a few weeks ago that Emil Smith-Rowe would be the guy off the bench first ahead of mm. Kai Havertz and Fabio Vieira. Not very many people. Um, things change quickly, it seems. But on the subject of Odegaard, it's something Clive Palmer's talked about for a long time, isn't it? When he comes back from international break, sometimes he's not his very best. I have to say, I, sort of, I haven't necessarily taken that particularly seriously just because I, I sort of struggled to see why it would affect one player more than any other. Um, I think... Probably what's the case is that coming back from the international break affects the team, affects our rhythm, affects our continuity, our flow. And Odegaard is someone who thrives on that, who almost needs that to be able to get on the ball. Now, that said, at Chelsea, even when he did get on the ball, I thought he was well below the expected standard. I thought he had a really, really, I'm going to say bad game. (laughs) <laughs> I feel bad saying it, but he had a bad game. You I don't think there's any getting away from it. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a lot of people say, well, should we have taken him off sooner? The only thing I'd say to that is, for who? You know, I, I, I'm not convinced that with Fabio, Fabio Vieira not in the squad, there was a kind of obvious alternative to Odegaard. You know, you've got Thomas Partey potentially, but does he offer you the same in the final third? I sort of feel like, Almost in the same way as Bukayo Saka, Odegaard has earned uh, the right to stay on that pitch for as long as possible, certainly for a good stretch of time, because he can produce and has done it for us so many times previously. But this was definitely a a poor performance. 
And yeah, I, I think we probably do have a, a, a little nagging issue after the interlulls. But I think it might be team-wide and it might just be that Odegaard is kind of the symptom of it. But that's my best guess. What, yeah. what do you think? I mean, I, I hadn't really noticed that as an issue. So I just went back to look at the player ratings that I did for the Everton game where we won 1-0 after the international break. We'd beaten Manchester United 3-1 and then played Everton. And from what I can see, I rated him the same as Declan Rice, who I think is the highest, and Trossard, 7.5, had two shots, two shots on target, three key passes. And my comments were he led our press from the front really well and tested the keeper a couple of times. So I don't know if it's always the case that after the international break, he looks a bit tired, but he does tend to play a lot when he goes away with Norway. Like he'll play the full 90 in both games. And That's true, which I, many of our players, you know, even if they go away, may not play all those minutes. Yeah. Uh, and this was a tough international break for Norway, wasn't it? I mean, they... Uh, they are not going to qualify automatically, right? Um, mm. They lost out on that. So who knows? Could there have been a sort of psychological hangover there? Um, but it's interesting you mentioned the Everton game. I mean, I think I recall Arsenal weren't hugely fluent that day either. So I don't know. I wonder if this might be an Arsenal issue um, and that Odegaard's just one of the players who sort of visibly suffers when that's the case. Well, yeah. I mean, when you think about the game on Saturday, right? I agree. I think Odegaard had maybe his worst game of the season. He wasn't good. The passing range wasn't there. His radar was completely off. But when I think about who actually played well in that game, you know, Saliba was, you know, the two central defenders were fine. I think Ben White was fine. Sinchenko didn't have a good game got taken off. Mm. Tommy Asu came on, had a good game. Jorginho, not great. I'd say he didn't have a good game. Yeah. Um, Odegaard, not great. Saka, very quiet until he came into the game towards the final stages. But before that... Have a good game, but rescued a point for us. Yeah, exactly, which is great. Gabriel Jesus didn't have a good game. You know, so... Probably 60%, 65% of the Arsenal players didn't have a good game on Saturday. And, yeah, I think there's probably just a big part of um, a big part of that is why, you know, someone like Odegaard stands out in particular when he doesn't have a good game because he's usually, at the very least, he's usually very involved and usually very um, secure in possession. And he wasn't on Saturday, and I think it stands out a bit more. Um, so we'll have to watch. Who are we playing after the next international break? We are going to play... Boom, boom, boom. Uh, Brentford, away from home. Isn't that where Fabio Vieira scored that great goal last season? It is. Yeah. Well, just do that again. Nice. Yeah. yeah, could be in line to start. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I thought this was a, a, a fun one, potentially. So we mentioned Gary Neville's commentary. Um, Strawberry Jesus, or Jesus, on the Discord asks, Morning, Jazz. 
Can I please clear up once and for all, or can we please clear up once and for all, I guess, which commentators are actively against Arsenal and which ones we generally like? All of them, isn't it? Isn't it all of them? They all hate us. <laughs> they all hate us. What about, us. <laughs> are there any that we think, I mean, what about Alan Smith? He's relatively generous towards us, isn't he? I think so. And even when he's not, I know he's having to do it through gritted teeth. Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue with, you know, former players, sometimes former players turn pundits feel like they need to be very strictly uh, fair slash objective and maybe go a little bit too far the other way when it's a former team. Some of them, you know, some of them very clearly don't. Um, And I think punditry has actually changed a bit, hasn't it? That this... The idea was, I think, in the past, pundits, regardless of their club affiliation, should, during the period of a game that they're commentate, or commenting on, be objective, strictly objective, and talk about you know the game without their club colours on. But I think more and more, that's changed, hasn't it? Like you have, yeah, you I have think, never I think fans own never really went away. You know, it just evolved into the pundits being more subjective. Yeah, you know, so you have, for example, um, you know, Neville and Carragher doing commentary on a Manchester United-Liverpool game and Carragher's having the time of his life because Liverpool are winning 7-0 and he's, you know, he's yeah, literally laughing. I mean, that that's quite fun, but I do think I do think that it has changed. And look, we have we have Wrighty, you know, who is very much someone who who op- operates with his Arsenal hat on a lot of the time. To be fair, a lot of it is the sort of behind-the-scenes footage which comes out after a win and he's just sitting there laughing at Alan Shearer or Peter Schmeichel or whoever it is that's annoyed that Arsenal have won and, you know, uh, Ian is celebrating like mad. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I try not to um, worry about it too much. Yeah, I think, you know, look, Gary Neville doesn't like Arsenal and I I think he would tell you that himself. To be fair, he's one of the few pundits I know that has actually tipped us to win the title. Yeah, that's only uh, so he could just... He's, jinx, he's trying to jinx us, a little prick. It's a jinx, right? Yeah. Deliberate jinx. I think Carragher is quite warmly disposed towards this Arsenal team. Um, generally quite positive, Alan Smith. Martin Keown sometimes can be quite critical. But then if you ever see those little clips of him going on TalkSport to shout at Simon Jordan, you see that he is very much an Arsenal man deep down. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I think they're all kind of hit and miss. Sometimes they're against you, sometimes they're for you, but there's a few out there that are all right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I watched the Sky commentary of Aston Villa, Unai's triumphant 4-1 win over West Ham. And I suddenly realised why supporters of most clubs seem to love Peter Drury, who's the new lead commentator on Sky. And it's basically like we thought we liked him because he sort of talked up Arsenal. And during our brilliant form last season, he'd be like, this young Arsenal side, you know, these stirring monologues he'd produce about the brilliance of Saka, the genius of Odegaard. I've realised having watched him commentate on Aston Villa, he just does that for every team. He was talking about Douglas Louise yesterday, like an imminent Ballon d'Or winner. He is the man, Douglas Louise. Watkins, 
magnificent, world class from Ollie Watkins. I mean, he, he, he basically is big on hyperbole. Um, but that's a good strategy to take. Everyone's going to like you, I guess. Uh, yeah, look, there, there is something to be said for finding the joy in football, you know, because there's a lack of it elsewhere. And to be able to lose exactly. yourself in in just the passion and the beauty of the game in that way, I think, you know, it, it does maybe feel a little contrived at times, but, you know, it's far better. How many times have we talked about, you know, pundits like, um, who was the guy... Lawrenson? Mark Lawrenson. Like, you know, you'd listen to him being co-commentator on a game and it was like, oh, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe. I'm with you. I have to sit here and watch a game of football and get paid for it. Ah, they've taken me to another World Cup. The fucking cunts. And now I have to sit here and the sunshine and go back to the hotel and drink a load of cocktails and like watching football. God. Whereas Drury is like the complete opposite of that. He, he just lives it and lives the moments. And I think he wants people to be enthused by, by what they're seeing. You know, I think the real test of Peter Drury will come on a super Sunday when it's Burnley versus Luton. And he's got to find the fucking joy in that. Best of luck to him then. He'll be talking it up like a, a some gladiatorial combat, I'm sure. And and I, I'm with you. I think enthusiasm is uh welcome. It can it can breed life into the broadcasting and I, I'm all for it. Here's a question from Gunnar Owl, who's at Wiendiola on Twitter. Who oh no, that's not the question I was gonna ask, but I'm gonna ask it now because I've read his name out and it'd be We've terrible to see. Yeah. He says, who are you most worried about Sergio Ramos kicking the shit out of tomorrow? And without Shaka, who can we rely on to be equally as shithousery as him? Ask me that again, Andrew. Sorry, I completely zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> so he's wondering, who are you most worried about Sergio Ramos kicking the shit out of? Oh. I mean, where to begin? Could be a hell of a battle with old Sergio Ramos. I... I I mean, I'm usually most worried about Bukayo Saka. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Gabriel Jesus simply because he likes a scrap, Jesus, and he'll absolutely get embroiled in one with Sergio Ramos. By um, the way, by the way, we didn't mention, I know I mentioned it in passing, but the moment in the second half of the game against Chelsea where Jesus is absolutely cleaned out by Robert Sanchez Oh, how, yeah. Sorry. Um, how is that not a penalty? How has that not know. been given? I mean, whatever about VAR, the referee's looking right at it. Like, Yeah. I think that's maybe, to my mind, I think that's the biggest mistake on the day mm-hmm. for the ref. Agree. The clearest. It's so dangerous as well. You know, it's like if he comes and he gets the ball and he clatters into a, a group of players and whatever. A, he didn't get the ball. He caught Jesus right in the head with his hip. It was like fucking Harold Schumacher on, on Batistan back in the day in the, in the World Cup. Um, you know, not quite as egregious as that, but certainly the contact was like Jesus has taken a right kicking in the last couple of games. Like the, the foul by Palmer. Um, you know, we, we mentioned he didn't have a great game, but I have to wonder 
to what extent he was impacted by that foul early in the game. Because when you get studs down your Achilles, it's extremely painful. Then, of course, he's seeing stars after, you know, getting flattened by the goalkeeper. Should be a penalty. Um, you know, especially after the huge error that they made with the Andre Onana one in the Wolves game. I just don't understand. Yeah, I think... Uh that that's a worry for me, Jesus and Ramos, because he does take a lot of punishment in games. And I think we can be sure that Ramos will be looking to deal out some punishment. Uh, he doesn't shrink away. He doesn't shy away from it, Jesus, but there's a limit to how much one guy's body can take. Mm. I think it would really hurt us to lose him. I'm, I'm really glad to have him back. So I'll be keeping a close eye on that particular duel tomorrow. Um, Hopefully he can come out on top and hopefully it's not too costly for him. Uh, yeah. Ramos, we know what Ramos Ramos is going to do. Right? I just Googled Sergio Ramos to see how old he was. He's 37. To be fair, Thiago Silva, you know, nearly 40 and probably Chelsea's best player still. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you everything. But I just Googled uh, Sergio Ramos and the first thing that comes up is Sergio Ramos elbows Jude Bellingham in the face and makes goal-saving ch- uh, clearance in his first game back against, against Real Madrid. So if that doesn't sum him up, he's going to do someone. There's no question that he is going to leave one on somebody at some point to because be honest, that's just I, who he is I'm partly concerned about the physical side um, I also think we've got to be on our guard mentally you know he's a wind up merchant right and he will be trying to get in all these players heads provoke reactions we've got to show maturity um, to deal with him mm. as well as hoping we come off better physically yeah yeah everyone everyone here is uh quite excited about Sevilla's game against Madrid. I mean, obviously it's one of their biggest games of the season. It just happened on uh, Saturday. It was a one-all draw. That's a very decent result, really, for Seville in context. They've not had a great season thus far. They've recently changed their manager. So everyone I've spoken to out here seems quite um, enthused by that game. So mm. they carry that into the match on Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah, it is going to be a tough one. We'll talk a bit more about the Sevilla game. We're, we're not going to do a preview podcast for Sevilla itself, but we will talk about the game a bit in the 30 tomorrow, which we'll have for you, our roundup of the Premier League uh, games at the weekend. Myself and Phil will uh, have a chat about the Sevilla game as well, look ahead to that. It is, uh, it is going to be a very tough one, a very important one as well, obviously, after losing... Uh, last time, uh, where is the question that I was going to ask you? Um, boom, boom, boom. Uh, yes, Jason Williams, who's at Williams Wrights. He says, another great performance from Tommy Asu. Do you think his versatil- uh, versatility is a curse for his chances of league starts? He's the only defender who can come in for any position in the back line, and it might be hard for Arteta to consider losing that flexibility off the bench. I think it's more of an aid to him than a hindrance. I really do. Um, I thought he did really well at left back at the weekend. I was listening to Ian Wright speak on his podcast and he was saying he would have started Tomiyasu in this game. Just knowing the form that Sterling is in, mm. knowing that's where Chelsea's threat was going to be, he would have given him the nod. Um, and, I, and, you know, on reflection, that with hindsight, that probably would have been the right call. I mean, I thought he was good. Not just good... 
on the defensive side, but he took up a lot of those central positions and his passing was crisp and I think he I think he helped considerably. Um no, I, I think it's gonna help him out that he can play different roles. And I think especially with Jury and Timber being out long term, I feel very grateful for it because Tommy Asu at this point in time is probably your first port of call in either fullback position. Um should you lose Ben White or should you lose Zinchenko or should you, you know, go for a different option? So I understand the point about being a jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. But I think, yeah, I think in the modern game, that flexibility is is really valuable. Let me ask you this. If we were playing Liverpool tomorrow, who would you start at left back? Home or away? Either. Home. Home. I think I'd, I'd be very tempted by Tommy Asu for sure. You know, if you're, he's up against Mohamed Salah in that channel, potentially Trent Alexander-Arnold in that channel as well. Um, I think Tommy Asu could absolutely be the guy. Would you go Tommy Asu? Mm. I think I would. From a defensive point of view, I know what Zinchenko brings. Um, and I do think to some extent the conversation around Zinchenko... Yeah, I, I don't think he's been bad this season. I've seen a lot of people no. express a lot of concerns about him. I thought he was really, really good against Manchester City, for example. And that was a big performance from the team, from the collective. And I think he was he was excellent. Um, I think he's had a couple of moments here and there. But I don't think he's been bad. But I think what's interesting about him is that we're seeing them maybe from the manager, you know, indications that he recognizes there are flaws in the player you know by some of the decisions that he makes you know um yeah well we had a question like this it was from super nintendo chalmers and <laughs> he said goodly morning somewhere <laughs> and he said zinchenko starts almost every game but never finishes one do you believe it's tactical or managing his body i think both i think yeah. both there are a lot of positives to the way that he plays and, and what he can bring to the team but there are also other players, you know, who can who can do a job, perhaps a job that's more necessary in the final parts of games. And hasn't he spoken about this, Arteta? You know, when people ask him, why is an X player starting? Why isn't this player starting? He's talked about finishers and not someone who can put the ball in the back of the net, but, but literally players who are, and I think this could be in some ways a consequence of the five sub rule, who are becoming more specialized as late game players, whether that's from an attacking point of view or from a defensive point of view. And I don't think Zinchenko is a finisher. Uh, I, d I don't think Tommy Asu is that either, by the way. I think he's got the quality to start and, and, and play across the back line uh, very effectively from the start. Uh, so I don't want to like class him as one of those. But I think you know you get to 70 minutes in a big game and you're 1-0 up at home and him for Zinchenko seems like a really solid change to me. You know, he made a big difference against Chelsea. You know, definitely, I agree. Um, impactors, I think, is Arteta's internal terminology. Impactors, okay. Yeah. 
Um, all right, we will do one more just before we finish because you've got to go off and do stuff and I've got to get this uh, podcast out. Uh, oh, no, that's uh, Scott, who's at Scott AF underscore, said, what sort of time do you call this? I usually listen on my lunchtime walk. That's been ruined today. Can I have an apology? No, sorry. You can have a refund. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's a Patreon member. Oh, then he can't. But it's on Twitter. <laughs> so anyway, uh, sorry for spoiling your walk. Uh, I hope you didn't have to listen to people, Scott. Uh, you found something else to listen to. Uh, Ginger Gooner, who's at Ginger Gooner 86, says, if Raya or Ramsdale were to receive a red, most likely due to poor officiating, and we had no subs left, which of our outfield players would be your choice to pull on the gloves? I knew there'd be a goalkeeping question, but I didn't know if it'd be that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've gone through the whole thing with that, um, the goalkeeping. Who should play in the next game? Do you know yeah, what? I know I'm, right. Look, I wrote about it a bit today, but I have to say I'm just a bit tired of the whole thing. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, what can we say? I think mm. Nicolás Teta's made his decision, you know, and uh, I, I don't hugely anticipate it changing in any meaningful way, but... We shall see. Ramsdale has travelled, I believe, so you never yeah. know. He was in training uh, today. I saw that. So, so who would I put in goal? I think Declan Rice. Mm. I think it, Declan Rice. He just has that sort of. I mean, he dominates most of the pitch already. So why not add his own six-yard box into that? And he has that kind of willingness to do anything you know to put his body on the line uh that i think could be he's tall as well um i'd go declan rice maybe he could even live up to the heroics of one olivier Giroud, who i saw yeah. making a, a very good save for syria <laughs> with his eyes closed it was so funny there's a brilliant slow motion clip of Giroud coming out to try and punch the ball away he's got his eyes closed don't mess up my hair please um i i think you're right about declan rice though I, I suspect he is probably a very good sportsman in general, like an all-rounder. He kind of strikes me as that kind of guy. Like yeah. he'd be very good at a lot of sports, you know, golf or tennis or cricket or whatever you want to play. He'd be good just because he's that kind of an all-rounder. Uh, so he was the first one that, that sprung to mind uh, for me as Maybe well. Maybe Gabriel as well. I'd give him a go. I imagine he would be properly mad. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Pure South American goalkeeper vibes, um, just smashing into people, charging up the pitch. I, I'd enjoy that. Yep, I'd go for that. One of those, depending on what the scoreline was in the game. You know, if it was 4-0 to Arsenal, stick Gabriel in there and just have some mayhem for a few minutes. If you need to hang on to a 1-0 lead, get in there, Declan. Get those gloves on and... Uh and do your best. All right. Well, look, we had better leave it there. Enjoy Sevilla. Hopefully you enjoy the game uh, tomorrow night as well, but do enjoy uh, the city, please, uh, as well. Join us on Patreon, as I said, tomorrow for the 30, looking back at all the weekend's Premier League action, and we will preview uh, the Sevilla game in there as well. For now, though, thanks as always for being with us, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.